Well, if you'll uh, turn with me now uh, into first your Bible, but then also <clears throat> into the back of our hymnal to page 923, page 923, to the Westminster Confession of Faith as we're working our way uh, through the confession together. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. And then also Romans chapter 5, Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3, and uh, verses 1 through 7, and then also Romans chapter 5, we see this subject taken up about the fall and about the work in Christ. And there we'll read from verse 12 to verse 21. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 5. And then chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession. That's on page 923. All right. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We also thank you for the providential development of creeds and confessions to help us understand the scriptures. We come tonight asking, Father, that the Spirit will lead us into truth. We pray, Lord, that the scriptures would be our primary authority and everything else subservient to your word. Lord, if you do not help us, nothing will be of profit. And so we pray that for the sake of Jesus Christ, who has suffered and who has died and been raised you might honor him tonight by sending us the Spirit. Give us the mind of Christ. May we be subject to the things written in your word. And Lord, may you give us joy in the Holy Spirit and faith in your Son. Build up our faith, renew us, revive us, reform us, Encourage us, give us strength, give us zeal. Lord, make us steadfast, immovable, abounding in your work. We pray not just for our sake, but for our neighbors. And for the sake, Lord, of our nation and all the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. 
But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Amen. Then Romans chapter 5. Starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned. From Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Now, if you'll take your hymnal and look at page 923, chapter 6, we read about the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. Page 923, chapter 6, section 1. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Number two. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Number three, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Number six, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Amen. So just real briefly here, let's look first of all at what the six sections are saying here, and then I want to look from the scriptures exegetically at what we're talking about. In section one, it mentions here Adam and Eve who are seduced uh, by the temptation of Satan. They eat the fruit, boys and girls, that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because they ate of this, uh, they fell into sin and were judged by God. Uh, This is what is known as uh, original sin, that the parents Our first parents, falling into a transgression, uh, affected us all. Bless you. So that they became dead in sin, section 2, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties. This is where we uh, get the idea of total depravity. Um, Does not mean uh, that, as we saw in the uh, high school, Sunday school class today, does not mean, high school students, that we are therefore as wicked as possible. We have not turned uh, into a demon so much, but rather that the totality of our being, of our humanity, our physical, our emotional, uh, our spiritual has all been tainted and corrupted by sin. And so it says all the parts and the faculties of the soul and the body have thus been affected and corrupted. And then in section three, uh, that mankind 
uh, has received the consequence of this transgression here. Notice it speaks about the guilt of the sin that is imputed and also death, which is a consequence of sin, as well as the corruption of our human nature. And then, uh, because of this, in section 4, the original corruption whereby we are made opposite to all that is good and wholly inclined to do evil, meaning that we cannot uh, find anything within ourselves by which we could lay hold of Christ. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. We need Jesus Christ to make us born again from above. And that is the work of the Spirit. Uh, The flesh profit nothing. Uh, The flesh is fallen. The flesh is dead in sin and uh, transgression. And therefore, we need a new nature. And so in section 5, it says here that this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. That is, the dominion of the sin is broken, but it's still there and has to be mortified on a daily basis. And then from this original sin come all actual uh, transgressions. Uh, we, that is, we are sinners uh, because we have a sin nature. Um, we we, uh, we, we uh, do not have a sin nature because we sin. We, we, uh, we sin because we have, we have been conceived with a sin nature. And that's what the sixth section here is saying here. Out of this fallen nature of our first parents come the actual uh, transgressions that come forth from us here. Now, um, this is also taken up in the catechism as well, in questions 16 through 19, but I'll leave that to you to check that out if you would like that summary. But the condition of man after the fall is one which the Bible says is of sin and misery. Now, the sin, first of all, is an objective sin. It is a sin of guilt. That is, it is a judicial condition. Um, It is not subjective, primarily. It is not that we have guilty feelings, uh, but rather we objectively are guilty before God in Adam's first sin. Uh, He being our covenant head, his transgression, even though we weren't necessarily present in the garden, historically, We were in the garden uh, theologically. We were in the garden federally or covenantally. When Adam was there, he was not representing only himself, but Adam was representing himself and his posterity at the same time. And therefore, his transgression uh, impacted us all. We were collectively guilty before God. Some people sometimes say, when is the age of accountability? And the age of accountability is the moment of conception because the moment we are conceived, we, our, our guilt of Adam is, is with us there from the beginning. And if you read Psalm 51, you see how David acknowledges that as he's confessing his sin. He's not excusing his sin, but he's showing the, how guilt uh, is even greater than the actual transgression itself when he acknowledges that I was conceived in sin and I was brought forth in iniquity. That's not an excuse. That that is, uh, he is doing actually the opposite. He is magnifying his sin and his guilt uh, before God. He is saying that I I was guilty before you from the very beginning. My only hope is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. With this judicial guilt, though, comes the misery of a fallen world, the sorrows we experience, the subjective and the 
experiential condition that comes with the fall is a consequence of Adam transgressing. And, it, and you know, it is Adam's sin. I can remember in high school, you know, um, people were saying, well, it was Eve's fault. Well, in Romans, Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul says it's Adam's sin. This was Adam's guilt um, primarily, not Eve's guilt primarily, but Adam's. Adam was the one who was the representative head of humanity there. Um, He was the type of Christ, if you will, in the garden. And had Adam obeyed, uh, he would have been glorified and humanity would have been glorified with him. But Adam did not obey. And so the, the, uh, the guilt of Adam's sin uh, is imputed to all his posterity. There is a want of original righteousness when we are conceived. We are conceived sinners. Um, we are born with corruption. To put it in the poetic language of the prophets, we go forth from the womb speaking lies. Um, Our nature is entirely corrupted in its extent, not necessarily in degree, but in its extent. That's what we mean by total depravity. We're not talking degree, but we are talking extent. And then we have all the actual transgressions that proceed from this fallen nature. All the individual sins that you and I commit on a daily basis come from this one transgression here. And so because of the fall of Adam, we, by nature, have lost communion with God. That is, boys and girls, we don't have fellowship with God as the way we should. The, we were supposed to walk with God in the beginning, like Adam and Eve in, prior to the fall. They walked with God in the cool of the, of the garden. But that was lost. What do we find after the fall? We find Adam and Eve hiding from God. They are uh, seeking to run away from God. They know that they are naked now. They know uh, that they have sinned and God is holy and they are seeking to escape from God. And so God, of course, being omniscient, but yet poetically says, you know, Adam, where are you? And he's hiding from God because he knows that he is guilty before God. And now he's under the curse of God. He is under the wrath of God by nature. And so are all his posterity. We are by nature under the judgment of God. We are under the wrath of God unless it be propitiated by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And I'll get to that later. And also all the miseries. You know, teenagers, you no doubt are beginning to taste some of the miseries of this life. You're beginning to realize that life isn't always easy. Life can be difficult. There's a lot of problems, um, a lot of disappointments in life. Where do these miseries come from? They come from the fall. And then, of course, death uh, comes as a consequence. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death are all consequences of the fall. And then, finally, hell itself is a consequence. God uh, brings a eternal reprobation or judgment, rather, uh, on the reprobate that condemns them to the judgment of God for eternity here. Now, just as we are condemned in what Adam did, the good news is that we are also justified by what the second or the last Adam has done. 
So that whereas Adam was a type of Christ and he failed in his righteousness, uh, nevertheless, by God's grace, God has provided through the seed of the woman, as he promised in Genesis 3.15, a second Adam, a savior. So that what Paul brings forth in Romans 5 is that while all is lost in Adam, all is redeemed in Christ to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That is, by Adam's transgression and sin against God, we are brought into a state of misery and condemnation. Even so, through one man, Jesus Christ, the second or last Adam, we are brought into another state of justification by his righteousness alone. And this is what Paul brings out in sections 12 through 21 here. The significance of this is that Paul establishes the connection between these two most important events in human history. The two most important events in human history. One, the fall of Adam in the garden. And number two, the redemption of man in the work of Jesus Christ, in the, in the cross and in the resurrection. These are the two most important moments in human history. Now, you might add a third, you know, with the return of Christ, uh, but that's when history kind of ends. That's the beginning of eternity at that point there. So I think it's safe to say that the two most important moments of human history are the fall and the redemption by the first and the second Adams. Now, remember that in Romans chapter 5, Paul's trying to lay forth the case for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That in, in Romans chapter 1, remember, what is Romans all about? What's the thesis about? It's about the righteousness of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that in Romans 5, Paul is talking about that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are justified and we have peace with God, he says. And that he goes from there and says that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ, and so we exalt in his glory, and we exalt also in our tribulations. And this leads to our growth in grace. It leads to character building and hope. He says that assurance is confirmed as God gives us uh, the reaffirmation of his love to us by his spirit. And we grow in that grace, even though things may be going difficultly for us. Nevertheless, having that confidence that we are justified, uh, we, we grow in sanctification in the Lord Jesus Christ. But how does all this blessing of justification and peace with God and exaltation in the glory of those tribulations, the assurance of his love and the salvation for sinners from the final wrath that is to be brought about against those who are outside of Jesus Christ all come about? And this happens, Paul shows, by way of the work of Christ as a second Adam. And that, that is what Paul is trying to establish here in verses 12 through 21 here. Look at verse 12, he says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that is, that's, that one man there is Adam, he says, and death through sin, so Adam sins and there's death and sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Nevertheless, if you jump down to verse 14, death reigned in Adam until Moses. And then he says, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That is, Adam is not representing himself. He's representing his posterity, even if they did not sin 
in the same way that Adam himself sinned, and that he, Adam, was representing us just as also Christ represents everyone who believes in him. That is, Paul is making a comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ. And on the account of Adam, sin and death has passed on to all of humanity. But be, and, and, and he's going to show that those who are united to Christ, though, which was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all those will be brought unto life. Um, in order to demonstrate how these blessings come to us through Jesus Christ, Paul is showing first how sin and death came into the world. And a proper understanding of the fall will give you a greater appreciation for your salvation. Um, I, it was said many years ago that, um, I think it was by John MacArthur, that one of the problems I think that people have with the doctrines of grace is they don't sufficiently understand the consequence of the fall and how bad the fall is. And, and because the this view of the fall is superficial, so also then is what Jesus Christ has done for us. But the more we properly understand the fall, it will lead us through this chapter to a better understanding of our salvation. Many Christians have woefully deficient understandings of the fall. This renders their view of salvation, I think, less God-honoring and Christ-exalting. When you recognize what the fall has brought about in our lives, it leaves you with a sense of hopelessness except for Christ. That there is no hope for anyone apart from the work of Jesus Christ. No man can bring him up by his own strength or pull himself up by his own bootstraps. It also shows why there can be no glorying in anyone or anything but Christ. God will not share his glory with another. And so it is important that we have this understanding of how terrible the fall was. I can remember in college, I actually had a professor try to argue in a humanities lecture that the fall was actually beneficial to man. Uh, I, we won't go into that, but that just shows you what kind of education I was subjected to sometimes. Uh, that is not Paul's view here. Now, in verse 12, Paul begins with the word therefore. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. Paul is making a connection between his previous statements on the privileges of being justified in Jesus Christ and the following argument of how through one man's death, man can be made, excuse me, let me back up. Paul's making the connection between his previous statement on the privileges of justification and the following arguments of how through one man's death many can be made the righteousness of God. He's comparing, if you will, the work of Adam and Adam's sin to the work of Christ and Christ's righteousness. Or to put it another way, the imputation of Adam's sin to humanity and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to all who believe. So in verse 12, Paul states that through Adam, sin entered the world and death, 
which is the wage of sin. So through this transgression of Adam, Paul is making this remarkable statement that death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Now think about that for a moment. He is arguing here everyone has sinned. All have sinned, not because of individual sins in themselves, but what? All have sinned because of one sin. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men, because all have sinned. In that one sin of Adam. Now, how is that possible? How is it that all men have sinned, and the Greek, it's in the aorist tense, which in English we would call that the past tense. All have sinned in Adam's sin. Even though historically you and I were not there individually, but we were there federally, covenantally. So in what sense did you sin in Adam's sin? Well, Paul says, you sinned in Adam's transgression because Adam was your representative. He is your federal head by nature. Adam represented all of humanity at the time he sinned against God. This is where we get the idea of federal theology, covenantal theology, covenant theology. Federal theology and covenant theology are interchangeable terms, okay? The federal government is a covenanted government. Your federal government, supposedly, is a government whereby the states have covenanted together uh, to give certain authority and powers uh, to this government, and the rest are to be reserved for the states. At least that's, in theory, the way it's supposed to operate. It's a covenanted government. Adam is our covenantal head. He's our federal head. He's our representative. Just as you might make the case that uh, your representative in Congress, uh, when he votes uh, this coming week, uh, that is your vote. In turn, covenantally, that is your vote. Okay? Even if you don't agree with the position, even if you've written him letters to the contrary, whatever, that is covenantally our vote. So Paul is arguing here, you sin covenantally before God. See, you have to, you have to un, get un-American here in a sense. And Americans, we're very individualistic, okay? Everybody gets a vote, right? <laughs> Not in the Bible, okay? All right. Adam sinned, and we sinned in him. So we have to rid ourselves of this American notion of fierce individualism and begin to think more in terms of a biblical worldview, a covenantal worldview. Um, in, in the church, the elders are your representatives. Um, right now, the General Assembly, well, today's Sunday, but the General Assembly is meeting this week it's, and, in, and in the beginning of next week. And whatever the General Assembly decides, you know, that is the decision uh, representatively, covenantally of the church here. So pray for the General Assembly this week. And also for the PCA, They're, they opened on Monday. We opened on Wednesday. And uh, we'll continue through, I think, Tuesday. Um, the General Assembly of the PCA meets on Monday. The IRP just finished their General Assembly this past week. So when they meet as an assembly or a synod, they, they are meeting covenantally, especially in our polity because 
Uh, we do not have a grassroots assembly in the OPC as the PCA does. Um, we have a, what's a representative assembly. We, as a presbytery, will vote on the ministers and the elders that will go and represent our congregations in the southeast. So Paul here, going back to Adam, this verse is teaching the immediate imputation. Now, there are some commentators uh, who look to verse 12 and believe it teaches immediate imputation. Um, Augustine, MacArthur, W.G.T. Shedd in the 19th century uh, in uh, Massachusetts uh, did hold to immediate imputation, the idea that sin is transferred through the propagation from parent to child to grandchild, etc. And that is a view within the Reformed tradition, though it is the minority view. But if you look at Turretin, uh, if you look at the, the followers of, of Turretin um, up through modern Reformed scholars such as John Murray, uh, the idea here is one of immediate imputation. Uh, that is what I am arguing for, that the guilt of Adam's fall and all its consequences are immediately and covenantally imputed uh, to his posterity. Now, the reasons that I, I argue this, I think, is because this is the argument of Paul. Paul's trying to sh help show us that just as we receive uh, the righteousness of Christ by immediate imputation, he's setting up the case by way of the fall. He's showing us that Adam is a type of Christ and that at, through one man's sin, the consequence of that was immediately imputed covenantally to all of humanity, but also the good news is that through Christ, the second Adam, we receive immediate benefits through faith in Jesus Christ. Namely, we receive forgiveness of sin and the declaration of righteousness, even though we're still sinners, because it's a covenantal relationship. And Jesus Christ is our federal head. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ becomes our representative now. We are, we, are, we are born by nature under the condition of the first Adam, but by grace we come into the covenant through the second Adam. And so Paul, I think, is trying to show us a parallel in this section. He's showing that even as Adam's unrighteousness is imputed to us, so also does God impute the righteousness of Christ in Jesus Christ, in the second Adam, to all who believe on him. The matter of imputed righteousness to sinners, I think, is the essence of the book of Romans. This is a book of, about our justification, which has a twofold aspect. One, the forgiveness of sin, and two, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. If we are to deny the nature of Adam's imputed guilt to his covenant posterity, I think we are undermining the apostolic logic with respect to our justification. And this is actually what some liberals actually are doing. Uh, there are some who want to deny the vicarious substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, which takes away imputed righteousness. So, for example, let me quote a Richard Gaffin, good man, good theologian. He writes about two guys that you probably shouldn't follow, James D.G. Dunn and N.T. Wright. Now listen to what Gaffin says. 
he says both of these men fail to affirm that Paul teaches imputation of Adam's first transgression. They fail to teach immediate imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. Now, there's a reason they want to do that. Now, I'm not saying everybody who wants to deny immediate imputation is doing it for the same reason. Let me be clear about that, okay? There are godly people who also would not hold to the immediate imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. But I want you to know that there are bad theologians out there who are doing it purposefully because they want to undermine the gospel, okay? Just so you know. So, Gaffin says, both failed to affirm that, the, that Paul teaches the imputation of Adam's first transgression. That guilt for sin is an essential factor in original sin, the condition of sin into which every human being is born. Gaffin goes on. He says, Dunn, in fact, rejects that Romans 5 teaches this. Here's a quote. Nevertheless, guilt only enters into the reckoning with the individual's own transgression. That's Dunn speaking there. He's saying guilt does not come by Adam's fall to you. Guilt comes by your own transgression. That is, you sin and become a sinner, is what Dunn is saying. We're saying, no, you're a sinner, you're conceived a sinner, and therefore you sin. You didn't teach your children to lie, but by the time they were two years old, somehow they told you something that wasn't true and you knew it not to be true. That's because they were conceived in sin. And the consequence of that is that kids, little kids, can lie, even though we haven't taught them to lie. It's part of their nature. Um, Human beings are not only responsible for the state in which they are born, That is the starting point of their personal responsibility, a starting point for which they are not liable, says Dunn. Okay, And that is from uh, the magazine Modern Reformation that I get that quote. Let me make a couple applications here. I would argue we sinned in Adam covenantally before God even before we were born. This is the reason death is universal. I think Paul is making that case here. The reason you have death, even you have death, why do you have death from Adam to Moses? Why do you have death even before the giving of the Mosaic law? Because Adam was given the law in the garden, in a sense. And he transgressed that law, and so death came to all of humanity even prior to the Mosaic giving of the law on Sinai. Death is universal for all of humanity. This also is why babies die. is because of the immediate imputation of Adam's guilt to all of humanity. Now, there were two people who didn't die, Enoch and Elijah, who both were brought up and translated into glory prior to death. But everybody else dies. Now, there are a lot of churches out there that teach the Pelagian view of the fall. The Pelagian view of the fall is that that which believes we become sinners when we commit our first sin. But that notion is not a biblical view of the fall. I think verse 12 refutes that notion. We are conceived with original sin because of Adam's imputed sin. Paul states here that in the sin of Adam, all men, past tense, sinned. Because all sinned, All men die. 
Now, what is Pelagianism? I threw that out there. That was a teaching uh, that came about in the West during the 5th century by a man named Pelagius. And uh, I think he's from Great Britain, if I'm not mistaken. He characterized, uh, it was characterized by an insistence on the adequacy of the created human nature that essentially was unimpaired by Adam's fall. That is, that there was enough, and this is coming from the New Dictionary of Theology, edited by Packer and Ferguson. That is, there was enough of humanity untouched by the fall uh, that they could reach down within that remnant of goodness and, and lay hold of the Lord apart from the grace of God. But what does the Catechism say? Question 16, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We sinned in him and fell with him when? In the garden. Now, Paul is saying here, on the account of this one sin, death has come into the world. And Paul wants to establish uh, the position of his first assertion in verse 12. Paul wants to prove that sin and death came by way of imputation of Adam's first transgression. Now, how does Paul proceed to prove the imputation of Adam's guilt to all of humanity? Well, look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So first here, Paul notes that sin was in the world prior to the giving of the law at the time of Moses. Yet, an acknowledgment of sin presupposes some kind of law, some kind of standard by which to judge whether there is sin or not. If there's no law, how can there be any sin? But we know that there was sin because there was death from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Therefore, there also must have been sin, for you cannot have death without the presence of sin. What is the point? Paul's point is that God must have given a law for Adam to keep in the garden. Otherwise, there could be no sin, no transgression, no culpability, no death. Yet, because... There is sin in the world from Adam to Moses. There had to be a law, a standard, by which God expected Adam to conform. How am I doing? I'm running out of time. We can do it. Here's the good news. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That is, so though Adam brought sin and death, he nevertheless still is a type of our salvation, Paul is arguing here. Now, death existed from Adam to Moses, thus proving the existence of a law or a covenant that was broken. But verse 14, note, however, that Paul states that death reigned even over those who had not sinned in the likeness or the offense of Adam. What is Paul saying here? He is stating that there are some, i.e. infants, young children, for example, 
who do not sin like Adam. They're not mature as Adam was mature when he sinned. And yet they are subjected to death. Unborn infants die. Pre, uh, born, in, newly born infants die. Paul is teaching here that the age of accountability is conception. Only the biblical view of the fall can explain why unborn babies and newborn babies die. Paul says in Romans 9 verse 11 with respect to Jacob and Esau that when the children had done, had done nothing either good or bad, he acknowledges that in the womb, Jacob and Esau hadn't done anything yet. And yet God chose one for salvation and left the other under reprobation. Death comes through sin, and sin was imputed to all men through Adam. Now, let me give us some implications and applications. For example, let's talk about baptism. In the baptism of our covenant children, what are we doing? We recognize these covenantal realities. We recognize that our children are conceived in sin. They united covenantally to the first Adam by nature. And they are subject to death, even as infants, and then the judgment. So we also recognize that God has made a second covenant with Jesus Christ. And that this covenant of grace through Christ has a reach that extends to infants. Even as the terrible consequences of original sin reach to infants, so much greater is the covenant of grace. The law came so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The covenant of grace extends to infants and all its terrible consequences. This is why we need the sign of the covenant on our infants. This is not to wash away uh, original sin and as the Roman Catholics teach, and, and put one in a state of justification until they commit their first mortal sin later in life, but is to acknowledge uh, the second Adam, the promise that is for us and our children here. But God often deals covenantally with us as households. We, we see this both in blessing and in cursing. So for example, Joshua chapter 7, when Achan sinned, the punishment was given to the household. God visited judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did not judge only the adults. When Daniel's enemies failed to destroy Daniel in the lion's den, it is said that they and their children were thrown into the lion's den. Paul is arguing in verse 14 that Adam, who was a type of Jesus, a type of Christ, who was still to come in the future, and so Paul is saying Adam and Christ are connected. Adam is a type of our Savior. The first Adam, he was made righteous in the garden, though his righteousness was a righteousness of innocency, according to theologians. He was created righteous, but it was a righteousness, obviously, that could be lost. Christ is the second Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ is the second perfect man, but his righteousness 
is one as the Son of God who has come into the world as a man conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and thus sinless, not having any of the effects of the first Adam in his own soul. He is able to be our second perfect man for us. Paul argues that the first Adam was given the law of God in the garden, which he could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was born of a woman born under the law that was given to Moses. The first Adam broke the law of God by sinning against God. The second Adam was holy, blameless, and undefiled, we are told in the book of Hebrews. The first Adam sinned for all humanity by going to the forbidden tree. The second Adam died for all sinners by hanging on the cursed tree. The first Adam brought all humanity into ruin by his sin. The second Adam brought redemption to ruined sinners who would call upon his name. The first Adam was shamed for his sin and driven from the garden. The second Adam was shamed for our sin and opened righteousness to us through faith in him. The first Adam was cursed along with all his posterity. The second Adam was cursed for his posterity. The first Adam had to labor under the cursed soil. The second Adam labored to deliver the creation from the ongoing groaning expectation of the revealing of the sons of God. The first Adam had to bring forth children by labor and sorrow. The, the second Adam brings forth children by the new birth, the promise to wipe away every tear. By nature, we are all united to the first Adam. And yet by God's grace through faith in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we are united to him and redeemed for eternal life and delivered from physical and spiritual and eternal death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 to 49, we read this. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, is from the earth, earthy. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, that is Christ, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 